0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Today my guest is John Nash, an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership Studies at the University of Kentucky. A few months ago, I met John and talked with him and his wife, Beth, over beers and the greatest fried chicken and fried rice in all of Honolulu. It was a mind-blowing conversation. At UK, John teaches a range of courses on school technology leadership, design thinking, and research methods. His current research agenda investigates how technology, innovation, and policy interact and influence schools and educators in different contexts. John is also a director of the UCEA Center for Advanced Study of Leadership for Technology and Education and the Laboratory on Design Thinking in Education, otherwise known as the D-Lab. John is the former Associate Director for Evaluation at the Stanford Center for Innovations and Learning, where he conducted applied research on improving program evaluation in grant-funded initiatives. And he is the former Associate Director of Assessment and Research at the Stanford Learning Laboratory, where he examined the effects of innovative technologies on learning. He was also a grant maker for the Wallenberg Global Learning Network, an arm of the Newt and Alice Wallenberg Foundation of Stockholm, Sweden, which is focused on enhancing learning outcomes through educational technology in the US, Sweden, and Germany. A few days ago, I learned that John has been selected as one of the faculty fellows for the University of Kentucky's Transformative Education Through Applied Knowledge Initiative. This program aims to advance student learning and success through high impact teaching practices that focus on transdisciplinary learning, which is a subject we will dive into in this episode. Most of all, John is a passionate advocate for all the ways design thinking serves, not just as a set of tools and techniques, but as a means to the adoption of a series of mindsets. Carmen Coleman, a superstar educator and education leader based in Kentucky and a colleague of John's, writes for this episode, and I quote, John Nash through human-centered design thinking has allowed us to see a whole new world of possibilities for what school could be. Through a very school and district leader-friendly approach, he has equipped us to reimagine beyond barriers. As a result, what are often the most significant challenges as we seek to reimagine the student experience like the high school schedule, have become catalysts for ideas that excite and inspire and ultimately change students' lives." And now, here's my conversation with John D. Nash. John Nash, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast.
1: Josh, it's great to be here. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Awesome.
0: So John, right now in education, we're talking a lot about profiles of a graduate or profiles of a learner. And it appears one of the formative experiences of your childhood was Camp Unalei, which I hope I'm saying correctly, in the Trinity Alps of Northern California, where you spent your summers. So what happened at these camps, and in what ways was the profile of John D. Nash developed as a result of your time in the Trinity Alps of California?
1: That's the best opening question I've ever had. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Camp Unilei. I think you got it right. By, yeah, we've called it Unilei. Or Unilei. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a wilderness backpacking camp, as you mentioned, in the Trinity Alps of the utmost northern parts of California near the Oregon border. And they take young people from, say, I don't know, I started going there probably when I was about age 12 or so through high school. And it is, as I said, it's a primitive backpacking camp. So when you go there for your two weeks, you're in a camp or sort of a, either up on the lake side or the creek side, and you're, you have two counselors in your camp and maybe six or seven other campers. And then there are about eight or 10 of these camps across the, spread across the the landscape of the camp area. And you sleep outside and you cook outside and all your food is stored outside in lockers. And then you plan a a backpacking trip in your camp that you go on in the first week. It's probably like a three-night camp. And so everybody leaves this this campground area and goes to the four directions of the compass into the Trinity Alps. And then you, you come back and you, in the second week, the counselor's offer up different trips for the 4-day backpack so you leave your your camp tribe or whatever this sort of area that you're in and you join up with another group that's going to go for four nights somewhere and some of them were specialized one of my friends who I went with for years decided to do the the real primitive camping experience on the second week where during one of the nights they're out each camper had to sleep by themselves somewhere in the wilderness. They had to leave everybody else. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and yeah, this is my friend Danny Crane. We're still friends today. We we met in kindergarten and we we were just talking, you know, on the phone a couple of weeks ago. And Danny was one of the toughest guys I know. And he he came back and said, Dale, Dale, I cried on that one. Everybody cries at Candy and LA at some point, mm. but he said it took the primitive overnight for him to really sort of like <laughs> break down. Hmm. But throughout all that, yeah, what, what, it's, what did it imprint upon me yeah. was this notion very early on that, you know, some bunch of coping tools that come along with being thrown into the woods. And that's you know, some self-reliance, <laughs> self-confidence, knowing that you can make it everything that you carry with you, you have on your back. And then this real supportive collective of the people around you, counselors that are, well, they're just really cool, but also really had their act together with with regard to you know how to live out in the in the wilderness. and then just and then dealing with the wilderness, you know the there's a lot of bears up there <laughs> in the Trinity Alps. so the the lockers, they were like these lockers that we stored our food in. It was you know, powdered milk and pancake mix and all kinds of stuff. and we would, We would strap these to trees so that Mm. the bears wouldn't get into them because everybody's gone from camp. And then the bears would come in because there's no people around and they would look for food. And we came back to see our locker had been ripped from the tree, thrown (laughs) about three yards. And then no no door on the locker was open. They just, the bear opened it from the side like a can of sardines and Mm. just had their time with it. But that's just sort of a memory that came to me there. But I think, yeah, Josh, it's that I think I underestimated the amount of impact that the time Mm. there had for me as I went forward as a young adult. And I think it also, I don't think I mentioned this when we talked earlier about coming on, but I think it prepared me well to go to Burning Man. I've been to Burning Man twice Mm. and Mm -hmm. which has a similar set of principles around radical self-reliance and Mm -hmm. being able to manage your own affairs and self, but also be there for others in a situation where you need to be supportive in a community. And so I think it also imbued upon in, within me a, an ability to be reliant on myself and to not take sort of things in stride as they come to you, because yeah. you know it's easy to sort of panic or, you know, like what do we do now? But I think that helped me sort of be kind of calm in the face of, all sorts of other adversity that might come at one, mm. that sort of helped me as well.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, John. And so we're gonna make a, a big leap in time here, perfect segue to, let's imagine you standing outside the door of your classroom, any classroom, any subject here in 2023, and you pause and you take a deep breath before opening the door and engaging your students. So who is the John Nash about to enter this learning space? What assumptions about his students does he enter the door with? Like, who does John Nash think his students are? And what is his philosophy of education? And what does he think his purpose is in this grand equation that is education in America?
1: You know, you've just described what I'll be doing in the spring of 2024, with a brand new course that I'll be teaching with a partner, Ryan Hargrove, who's a professor in landscape architecture. And together we teach a, a form of a design thinking course. And we've been tapped to modify that course for undergraduates at our university University of Kentucky. And so we'll walk into a room of about, uh, could be 25, maybe freshmen or maybe first semesters or second semester sophomores. I guess they might be freshmen. Mm. They're young. They haven't been out of high school very long. And the John Nash that's going to walk into that room is going to suspend belief Mm -hmm. (laughs) at first and assume that these learners are interested in trying something new, but have been also programmed for the last 16 years to not think as creatively as we might like them to do and not think as outside the box of getting a grade or a check mark on an activity. Right. And so I think we're going we're gonna, to, I am, I can't speak for Ryan, but we, we are of like mind. going to walk in the room ready to accept where they've been mm. and use that as a strength And then hopefully bring them to a point where they see each other's strengths as an asset so that they can work in teams on the projects we'll have going forward. Mm. I don't know. I think that's initially. I love your question. I don't know if I got to it. Mm.
0: And, And maybe say, John, a little bit more about who your students will be and the assumptions that you're making about them as you meet them for the first time or even, you know, for any class, John, that you're walking into every day is a new day, right? As a teacher. And so what are you thinking about them and and the things that they carry and how you're going to
1: interact with them? Well, I'm thinking that they've been socialized to a form of learning that has been a little bit more didactic than not. Mm. And I'm also thinking that they may not have been exposed to Styles of teaching and learning that give them a lot of agency. Mm -hmm. And so I prepare to see a lot of blank stares when I think about the way in which we sort of kick off the purpose of the class and what we'll do. In fact, you mentioned earlier on when we were talking about doing this conversation about what sorts of things appear and most likely to succeed. Mm. And I had noticed that, for instance, the if people remember the kickoff of the Socratic seminar at High Tech High, yeah. where he asked them to rearrange the room, that kind of reminds me of how mm-hmm. I teach. I mean, so I put a lot of agency into the students early on to let them know that they're in control. And usually I get looks like that teacher did that day, mm. where they don't really you know, know what to do, or they can't believe they've got this, this sort of agency. Mm. I'm thinking about that, and then I'm thinking about the ways in which we can build up their confidence to trust their gut and their head, that they're humans with agency and can work with each other and work on something together with me. And I think that's the other thing I do is I presume that they have also been socialized to think that the professor in the class is sort of all-knowing and all-powerful, and I'm pretty prepared to break down that that barrier by letting them know that we're going to work on something together and that I'm present more as a mentor and at times a colleague, I may end up picking up some of the work that they need to do for us to do the project because Mm. we're in this together to try to make the world better, whatever it is we're working on.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, John. I, I love the idea that in some ways, as you come into the room, the thing that the students are going to pick up on relatively quickly is that this is not a cut and dried process, it's a kind of messy process. And they have to get used to that mess and the relationship that you're gonna have with them kind of starts at that messy kind of point, which is actually a great segue to my next question. You know, you shared with me some books that have had an outsized impact on your life and on your head and on your heart, and titles you listed included How to Make Sense of Any Mess, by Abby Covert, Slideology by Nancy Duarte, Design to Live, and the 1619 Project edited by Nicole Hannah-Jones. But the book you shared with me that sent me down a rabbit hole is Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie, which I I had never heard of. So at Goodreads, John, I noted this line in a description of the book, and I quote, it will be a must read for any manager looking for new ways to invigorate employees And any professional who wants to achieve his or her best, most self-expressive, most creative and fulfilling work, end quote. So I also read a whole bunch of reader reviews of Mackenzie's books. As you can tell, I just went down this rabbit hole completely. So how, John, does... The metaphor of hairballs figure into who John Nash is and his purposes in life. So how how does John Nash continually revive creativity in his life? How does John Nash deal with the massive hairball messes that permeate everyday life in America and even in Kentucky and in the classrooms that you serve in?
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that you know Mackenzie's metaphor of the hairball is sort of I think of as the he comes at it from the area of uh, sort of corporate normalcy, and so and he was a he worked at Hallmark Cards for years, mm. but the hairball is to maybe many of the people that we talk to these days, you and I, Josh, and people who listen to this, is either our school districts or universities or anything that's got a bureaucratic nest. To it. Yep. And then, how do people like you and I navigate that hairball? And in Mackenzie's case, how do we orbit that hairball? Because getting inside the hairball is is sheer—I don't know—it's it's our demise. And so, but can we orbit it? Because there's a lot of good things that our organizations do. There's a lot of good things that universities do and yep. schools do. And even though they're a nest of bureaucratic rules and regulations and and people who are live and die by those rules and regulations that maybe don't aren't as creative as we'd like them to be. And so how do I get around that? How do I how do I navigate that? I think I, I navigate it with a healthy dose of respect, but skepticism. Mm. So I understand that the system must work and go forward. And there are things that are bigger than me that I can change. But at the same time, where there's points of leverage, where we can insert some creativity or insert some reasonableness or Even just ask some critical thinking questions about why it is we do what we do. Then that gives me some, some level of sanity as we try to navigate all that. Mm. And it's sort of similar to what I ask the students to do is we sort of help them unlearn the the didactic processes through which they've been taught through many years as they come to college and say, you know, how can you ask healthy questions about what you do and what we do so that we can move forward to create a a better world?
0: Mm. You know, what really struck me, John, was that in thinking this through, I was reflecting on the ways that hairballs and messes are polar opposites of each other. That hairballs, these sort of bureaucratic systems, don't like messiness. But the real exciting, creative, inquiry-based, wonder-based teaching and learning and coaching and guiding and sponsoring is a very messy process. And so, you see, and and then you wrote this awesome piece on LinkedIn about messiness, which I loved. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think about, like, how life is a series of navigations that we all have to make between or around the hairballs and in the midst of messes, in a way. I don't know how to (laughs) capture that, you know?
1: I know. You move from the school district hairball to the university hairball to the, maybe your family is a hairball. (laughs) They uh, are. They can go in different ways. And I guess back to your original question, when how I cope, I guess I go to Abby Covert. I think that's another great book. You're mm-hmm. right. Is how to make sense of any mass. I start to draw. I mean, I, I make sense of the world by, by drawing it out. It might be just me writing out some things. It might be just some boxes and arrows. It might be drawing pictures, you know, when the, in the pandemic. You know, let's say, let's go back to like April 2020. Yeah. And what are we doing? What what am I doing on the porch with my wife? Well, I've got an iPad out and an Apple Pencil out, and I'm trying to draw out our bubbles, our Mm. safety bubbles. (laughs) Like, (laughs) all right. Was, all right. The kids, who they know and what bubble they and So we we can't talk about it. We had to draw it out. Yeah. So I think I, that was a mess. And that was how we were going to make sense of that mess. Mm. I do the same today in class. If there's something that we want to talk about. We go to the whiteboard and we draw it out. Mm. A lot of relationships that can get portrayed much more easily if we can just get the mess on the board and then talk about how it connects to each other. That's what we'll do. That's awesome, John.
0: So, John, there is, as you mentioned already, a Ted Dindersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed. There is this early moment in Ted's film when Andrew McAfee, then the Associate Director of the MIT Center for Digital Business, stresses how a massive shift in 2013 happened as the company Narrative Science began producing business reports written by machines, by artificial intelligences. And McAfee asks this question, what are people going to do for a living when our muscle power isn't valued anymore and our mental power is not valued anymore? So John, that was only 10 years ago. So in light of what we now know about ChatGPT, which is a large language model AI tool, in what ways is McAfee's question like still relevant? Like what, what are the best questions we educators, education leaders, and parents of students should be asking ourselves at this
1: particular moment? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a that was an interesting moment in the film, particularly in light of what we have seen happen over the last six months since ChatGPT became a, a public tool. Yeah, he said that. He said, what are people going to do for a living when our muscle power isn't valued anymore and our mental power is not valued anymore? So I think, firstly, he was referring to sort of the industrial revolution and sort of like, we we figured out how to to not lift heavy things and we can move over great distances with other types of power besides our muscles. And so now, here's this machine that's going to write things in perfect English. What are we going to do when our mental power is not valued anymore? So... Is it really fair to say that our mental power is not valued anymore? I think that's the first question we might ask. Yeah. Because I think with what I'm thinking about now as I frame the use of chat GPT, it is extending mental power in many ways. Is it replacing skills that humans have that we expect youth, for instance, to show us like writing a five paragraph essay? Yeah, it can do that quite well. But that doesn't really, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to frame that. It's not that doesn't have to do with mental power per se. I think that I think when tools like ChatGPT are present in the right way, they extend people's creativity and they also provide affordances that can equalize, maybe democratize the power shifts that we see in terms of how ideas are portrayed and how ideas can come to the surface. So, mm. for instance, what I mean is for years, for years, decades, Josh, I have believed that one's ability to express themselves well in writing was a mark of their ability to do well in school and just be generally a, a smart person. Mm-hmm. I've been socialized to that and I was, I fell into this trap. I call it a trap now because in the last, 45 to 60 days, I've done a 180 on that. And a lot of it because of what ChatGPT is doing in the following ways. Because now we have a tool that will allow people to express their ideas in writing in clear forms, Mm. it now opens the doors for a whole series of ideas that were boxed out until then. Mm. I mean, who's to say that there aren't a lot of really great ideas that exist in the minds of neurodivergent people, people who use English as a second language, people who perhaps in your home state who rely on an oral tradition to pass down knowledge yes. and information yeah and now this tool those yeah those ideas are valid and and the, the marketplace for those ideas have been has been completely boxed out because of People like me, until recently, who think, "Well, if you can't express yourself well in writing, then we don't. Your ideas probably aren't any good anyway." What ChatGPT does is it levels the playing field for these types of ideas to come to the fore, so that they can be expressed in a way that, well, I think in, when I think about philanthropic circles, now ideas can be expressed to the white people who have all the money.
0: Mm, right.
1: And so I think that that's really interesting, and I think that's what it's doing. And so is it the case that our mental power is not? valued anymore? No, actually, I think we're going to open up doors for a whole host of people Mm. whose mental power had not been tapped into before. Mm. And I think that that will open up a lot of improvements in the world.
0: Yeah, John, I was thinking about, you know, going back to hairballs and messiness, that the hairball systems are going to react negatively to these advancements in generative AI, I think. And then there's going to be a whole population of people that absolutely embrace the messiness as we go forward. There's so many questions to deal with, as you have already articulated. And to me, my 180 is just, I'm so excited about all these questions as they come up, right? Mm -hmm. But I can see where there are lots of people who are not excited about those questions. That's, you know, when you're comfortable with the hairball, you know?
1: Yeah, comfortable with the hairball, or you know, I was I was floored back in January. Actually, I was sitting in on the island of Oahu uh, probably a day or two before I met you, Hmm. and I was thinking about what ChatGPT was going to be doing with regard to writing instruction and what we value in terms of assessing writing, and it struck me that the hullabaloo around academic integrity and cheating and the use of ChatGPT was all that hand-wringing was really just cover for the inconvenient truth that teachers and professors were going to have to rethink how they assess learning. Mm. And I think this is still going on, and I think that's part of the, the people that are inside this other, sort of this hairball of thinking that we've got to only assess by the way, i I just had a colleague tell me yesterday after work that he's hearing rumblings in certain circles of our university that professors are going to go back to using blue books. Oh my because, god, Josh, <laughs> here's, here's the thinking on this. That, you know, well, it's it's week ten of the semester, and week ten is the semester when we do the essay. And well, if there's chat GDP, well then we just better use a blue book. <laughs>
0: I still have PTSD over those blue books. I hated them
1: as a student. I hated them as a teacher. Oh, my
0: God. Wow.
1: So I'm thinking now there needs to be a conversation about what we are actually teaching students and what we want them to know. Mm. What do we want them to know? And how does your use of that particular assessment tell us that? Yeah. And I think that's where we need to have a conversation. Yeah. That's awesome, John.
0: So, hey, everyone. We've been talking to John Nash. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro, and like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be Educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the Ed Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Hey everyone, we are back with John Nash, who teaches a range of courses on school technology leadership, design thinking, and research methods at the University of Kentucky. So John, your resume has a five mile long list of books, papers, and chapters you have written or co-written over many years, and all of the titles, bar none, are incredibly fascinating. I worked my way through all 46 pages of of your resume. So I thought we might do a fun, rapid round in which I prompt you with a paraphrased title, all focused on some element of design thinking, and you provide a precis, a quick, and concise summary of essential points or statements or facts. Does that sound okay? There's five. Sure, I'll do
1: my best. Awesome,
0: okay, rapid round. So number one, the development of collaboration skills in design thinking.
1: Well, I think that one of the things that we worry about and trying to apply design thinking in either organizations or schools is getting teams to work together. And actually design thinking is interesting from a designer standpoint, but where it's really powerful is when a team can apply it. Mm. And so collaboration is key throughout that. One of the things we think about is making sure we have a diverse team. That doesn't only mean diversity in the sense of DEI, but also diversity in terms of experience, background, maybe even sort of a Myers-Briggs type personality type. Mm. And when we have diverse teams, we have better collaboration.
0: Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Number two, discovering childcare providers' coaching needs with design thinking techniques.
1: Right. Right. So in many states, and I'll use the state of Kentucky as an example, there are hundreds if not thousands of different child care providers from large child care centers to mom and pop operations out of a house. Yeah. And the child care industry, if you will, is heavily regulated and it should be for safety and for other matters related to just good practices for children from birth to five. And so the technical assistance that those providers need, ranging from the mom and pop to the big center, varies wildly. And the resources that the state has to provide that technical assistance is limited. And so we use design thinking to get to understand the unmet needs of providers so that we could tool recommendations to technical assistance providers on what they should be thinking about and providing when they hit those providers' operations.
0: Wow, that's awesome. So that's a perfect segue to the third prompt, which can also, John, include the young kiddos who actually need childcare. So how design thinking can elevate and develop student voice?
1: Yeah, my favorite. So we use design thinking in workshops and when we do consulting, but also in academies Where we bring in a a group of school leaders. Usually it's it's principals, might be teacher leaders, there may be a superintendent in the room. Mm. And then we also bring in a bevy of students. They could be middle school students or high school students who sit with the principals and teachers and superintendents and are empathetically interviewed by them on matters related to how we might increase their voice and agency. Mm. And what happens is we turn these say, you know, 12-year-old middle school students or maybe a 14-, 15-, 16-year-old high school student into policy, curriculum, and regulatory partners with Mm. these school leaders on how schools ought to run. So actually, I think when you think about this notion of what schools could be, Mm. each of these tables is discussing that with the kids, and the kids are basically telling them, you know, here's how schools should be. Mm. When they're done the adult learners in the room are flabbergasted because what they realize in going through this process is that when presented with the right kinds of questions and presented in earnest and with honesty, students, young learners can provide a wealth of information as a partner in a school and trying to know how it should run, Mm. how it should be, and how kids also want to feel in schools. And so Mm. a lot of what I think about and worry about And this is, I focus on this quite a bit in in my book is that I think that it's experience is the most important thing we can think about in trying to improve schools is how do we make it a great experience for learners and then also for the adults that are, that are there that work to to teach the the learners. But because if school is not a great experience, then students are not going to be interested in, in going to school. And the best way to start with understanding experience and experience design is to ask people how they want to feel yeah and I get sometimes a little pushback or maybe I invent this in my head but I just feels I think people think it's a little strange when the first thing I want to talk is about is how do you want your students to feel and how do you want to feel Mm. It's like shouldn't we be talking about the day pattern or or the curriculum and what order we're going to be doing things and I said no I just want to talk about how students want to feel and how you want to feel but when we know that then we have a point of departure for design, and mm-hmm. then all the sort of nuts and bolts can come with that. But I think that's that's one of the things we think about when I think about that thing you brought up.
0: Ah, oh, that's awesome! I mean, everyone knows anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm an education geek through and through. But you just <laughs> gave me goosebumps with that one. Oh my God, how exciting! <laughs> I wish I was back, you know, in school with a group of people who really wanted to know what I felt and what I thought about what my education could yeah. be, right?
1: Yeah, well, so here's an example. What we learn from this, these sorts of conversations is that the bar is so low to making an experience great for students, and the bar is just asking the right kinds of questions. But years ago, when I was linking my work and interest with school technology leadership and integration of tech and design thinking, we ran a workshop where students who were in a one-to-one program we're talking about the ways in which they might have a bigger voice in deciding how that program and implementation of laptops would go. Hmm. And they were brainstorming different ideas about things that would be better for them. And when the, we have a big brainstorm, we have them harvest that brainstorm by putting all the ideas, so there's 30 or 40 ideas, pick four, and they have to go into these categories. There's the most rational choice, the one that will delight the learners, the team's favorite. But the last one, the long shot, and I tell the kids, this is the idea that your principal will never, ever let you do. But if they would, it would be awesome. Mm. And they stick an idea in there. And so we, they go and prototype some ideas. And I always ask each table, what was your long shot, by the way? Now, and at this particular table, the kids said, mind you, this is a school that's one-to-one laptops. Mm. He said, we'd like to use Skype. <laughs> that was the long shot. <laughs> And so, yeah, once the leaders figure this out and they go, oh my gosh, I can take care of that. That's Mm. So the things that kids think are so far away are often just a little snap of the fingers of school leaders, Mm. but they don't know them because they don't ask them and they don't talk about it.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Someday offline, John, I'll have to tell you a story about me and Skype and a class that I taught where I never actually showed up for the class. I did it all via Skype when Skype first came out and it was a blast. But anyway, so two more. Design thinking in the middle levels of school.
1: Right. Those are workshops I did with the European League for Middle level education Elmley, And we looked at trying to show, similarly to what I just described, we brought kids in from independent schools at the workshops so this was in Rome and I think we also did this in Prague mm. and so teachers empathized with students so that we could demonstrate that it's safe to talk up with students in a structured way about how schools could run and the way schools could be better and so that was really useful for those people mm. that participated
0: yeah that's awesome all right last one using design thinking to humanize online education
1: So this is one of my efforts nowadays, and that is thinking about where is online education going to go after sort of the, what my colleague Jason Johnson and I call the second half of life. Now, I think that Josh, you'll probably agree that I think online ed and computers is not even in its second half of life nearly, but because my friend Jason and I are, we've been thinking, well, online learning's had its chance to be good over the last 25, 30 years. And some of it is, but a lot of it still isn't. Mm-hmm. And our argument is that we think that there's an opportunity to really humanize online education, take it out of the hands of just the sort of perfunctory learning management systems, and uh, that can get a little didactic and mm-hmm. help teachers, professors, others that are interested in participating in online learning think about ways that they can use the technology and just good instructional design to make the experience and e-learning as human as possible for the learners.
0: Mm, That's awesome. And what a frontier, right, John? What a frontier for us. What a challenge for us as educators. If that's the North Star that we're sailing towards, boy, then I'm feeling hopeful. (laughs) It'll be fun to see how this plays out over the next few years. John, some of my bad memories from when I was in middle school and high school stem from attempts by teachers to teach me to be a better communicator. And I'm just like, ugh, 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 as I started reminiscing about what that was like. You know, it feels like the only method my teachers could come up with was to have me do some sort of project or paper and then have me stand totally terrified in front of a class of students who could not have cared less about what I made or or what I learned or anything, really. And so, Fast forward to this past week, more than 50 years later, when I read a chapter you co-wrote with your wife, Beth, in a book, and the chapter is titled Visual Communication as Knowledge Management in Design Thinking. Okay, so that's a pretty academic title. But wow, John, the ideas you share about how design thinking is one awesome way to develop communication skills really blew my mind. So briefly, how does design thinking become a beautiful stew with spicy ingredients like body storming, brain writing, card Mm -hmm. sorting, and mapping, among many other concepts that help develop communication skills?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. And that was a fun chapter to write. Yeah, and my My wife, Beth Rouse, Professor Beth Rouse, who's the lead author on that, and I wrote that for a handbook on applied communication. And this chapter focuses on the mindset within design thinking of show, don't tell, I think, if you had to distill it. And this idea of show, don't tell is that when we can portray ideas in a nonverbal fashion, we open up opportunities for feedback and for transmission of the ideas in a much higher fidelity than we might otherwise do with just a, a memo or writing it up or just talking about it. And yeah, the fancy title, Knowledge Management. What we allege in this chapter is that when you can portray ideas visually, either through sorting or actually, as you mentioned, body storming, acting things out. doing Mm. a play, I once had a bunch of uh, superintendents and superintendents do a lunch sack puppet show to portray how PLCs would work in their schools. (laughs) And so this puts the ideas out in the public sphere, even if it's just a few people, but it gets them out so that people can react, talk, augment the ideas. And this idea, and there's actually, there's a lot of good empirical research on the idea that if you're able to put something down on paper between two people, the amount of information exchanged is much higher than if you were just describing it or you were writing it out, so mm. typing it out on a computer. And so... What we do in this chapter is offer a, a topology of different approaches. I forget how many are in there, but you know, over a dozen different ways that yeah. you can ask someone to portray something for you. So if you're a designer in sort of the designer's catbird seat, trying to understand another person's unmet needs, you might ask them to draw it out or you might mm-hmm. ask them to put it on a, in a quadrant so you could see what's more important or you might have them yeah act it out and so all of these different ways allow you to really get inside the minds of someone else other people so that you can be a better designer and you can make well as my friend dan gilbert and i'd like to say make someone's life better
0: mm. and so john a side tangent question and i'm i'm a little nervous asking this because I'm, I'm afraid we might lose our listeners in the jargon, but in what ways is the process that you're just describing or that you just described, in what ways is it enhanced by transdisciplinary approaches? And I think it's going to require you to briefly explain transdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. How do you unpack transdisciplinary, and how does design thinking and the object being, you know, amazing abilities to communicate in all of these different ways, you know, enhanced by transdisciplinary approaches?
1: Sure. I think one way that we can describe transdisciplinary approaches is to think about the fact that many of the world's really sticky, wicked problems are not generally solved by the approaches of any one discipline or any one set of expertise. Mm. One of the things we like to talk about in the state of Kentucky is the opioid crisis as, mm. a, as a wicked problem that requires a transdisciplinary approach. So it's not just a medical problem. And so it requires the certainly the support of medical researchers and others that are thinking about those who are addicted to opioids, but also there's a whole social component to it and it requires matters related to education. And so people from different stripes in the disciplinary rainbow really need to be brought together. We can't trust the solutions of just the medical establishment or the education establishment. We need to work together. Mm. So then that brings us to the point of like, well, how best will these people work together? Because that's a whole nother matter of getting good collaborative work to solve a sticky problem. Mm. Is, well, as we've sort of alluded to before, I mean, different strokes for different folks. And so I think that, When we think about transdisciplinary work and design thinking, what it offers is a set of tools and processes by which people from different disciplines can work together against sort of the transdisciplinary work Mm -hmm. to then take a challenge and derive solutions for that challenge.
0: that's awesome. So, John, perfect segue to our final question before we go to our second break. You and I both watched a Netflix series episode, and the series is titled Abstract, The Art of Design. And the episode we both watched is about the famous toy designer, Kaz Holman. And so, look, I'm not even sure how to ask a question about this epic episode. So, Mm -hmm. we'll resort to this lame attempt here. So, at one point... Ms. Holman throws traditional education, meaning desks in a row with a sage on the stage, completely under the bus. And in a way, she even throws under the bus traditional toys where the design process stops and the play gets short-circuited when the toys manufacture is complete. So what is your take, and I know this is huge, What is your take on play, on toys, on making stuff, and unstructured time? Like, what's your color commentary on what this all means in terms of design thinking and everything? You know, I'm still struggling to try to figure out how to ask the question, you know?
1: No, that's great. And I, that episode really moved me as well because, well, I related to a lot of it. Cass Holman grew up in Northern California and Grass Valley and Mm -hmm. connections to that Mm -hmm. area. But also just, I think there was a couple of quotes in there that really struck me and back to your questions, like what, I should have opened up with this when you asked me, like when John Nash walks into the classroom and Mm. and these these brand new set of students, either they're they're teenagers or they're adults, what am I thinking? And I'm I'm thinking actually what Cass Holman said, which was, quote, these are the people who are going to make the world suck or not suck. (laughs) Right. And so her job, and I guess my job too, is to build the confidence to be creative and to trust your own gut and your head if you're given a good process to go solve a problem. Mm. I also loved that at the start of the episode, they're talking about, you know, if I tell a kid to make a car, they're going to make a car. yeah, Because the car is a known entity. But if I just give them a bunch of stuff and I say, come up with a way to get to school, then they're not going to think of a car per se. And what I loved about that was what I try to do as well, is that I try to have students design for solving under circumstances and not things. Mm. So we don't say, you know design a better school. I say, design a way so kids feel amazing every day. I mean, that's that's a totally different thing, but they're both they could both happen in school. And so I think that's really good. And then the other thing that she did, which I think we need to see more of is she built a gigantic tool set called Rigamajig and she called it a glorified pile of construction debris. And what I think was cool about that is that it made the kids feel like they were trusted with real materials. It looks like real construction stuff, but it's totally safe and it's, but it's bigger than them. And I think that's the other thing that we as teachers can do all the time, which is trust our students with real materials. And so when we teach design thinking, we trust them with real problems that real people are having. We have partners that come to bear. We have a short film that just came out last semester about our our work recently, where we worked with Markey Cancer Center at the University of Kentucky. We, We gave them real problems with real things to work on. And that says to kids, wow, I'm valued here what I have to bring to the table is valued. And I've got a mentor and a a person who has my back that'll take me through this. And I think Mm -hmm. that that really said a lot to me.
0: You know, I'm going to include the link to that film, which is just absolutely awesome, John. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'll include a link in the show notes. And what you've got me thinking about is that my K-12 life here in Hawaii was one giant hairball. Mm -hmm. And my life outside of K-12, when I left school, was one big giant construction site. It was like yeah. that's why I think I really resonated with this episode because when I went home from school it was just like there was all this stuff to do, rock walls to build, you know, reefs to go clean, sailing to do everything under the sun and and ah uh, I just I just wish I could go back in some ways and do it all again. But that's okay. No regrets. Just live the life (laughs) that you're in right now and make it as messy as possible and just enjoy the heck out of it. Right.
1: One of the things I noticed also that I wrote down a little note towards the end of that episode was that there's no right or wrong. There's just better. I think that, and as I talked about trying to help students unlearn the process that they've they've had through their 12 years of schooling they have before they come to the university, even adults, school teachers who come back for leadership degrees, they're also, they're pretty rigid. And I think it's important for us to say, look, there's no right or wrong here in our blueprint. There's just us making something better. And Mm. that's how we grade. That's how we judge. That's how we work with each other. That's how we collaborate.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. So hey, everyone, we have been talking to John Nash. Stay with us. We will be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Steven Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you.
1: Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and
0: community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning. And through comments, are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com.
1: Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPallo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey
0: everyone, we are back with John Nash, whose 46 page resume is a marvel of deep thinking and even deeper learning. So John, I'm going to read a brief excerpt from something you wrote for a recent performance review packet, and I quote, "'My doctoral teaching philosophy emphasizes adult learners' unique needs and experiences and is grounded in constructivist principles. Adult learners bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to the classroom, and my role as a teacher is to facilitate their ongoing learning and development," end quote. So John, you can only imagine how much this paragraph meant to me. After two stupid years in college, shortly after high school, I drank a lot, I played a lot of rugby, I did not study a lick. I had no reason even to be there, and no purpose. I went on to become a chef and then a hotel manager. And a decade later, I went back to school as an older student in my 30s, this time at the University of Iowa, to finish my undergraduate degree, which was in history. So I think my years as a chef and baker and hotel manager turned me into a top student, albeit in a traditional system, and someone who is utterly relentless in my search for knowledge and meaning. So tell our listeners more about these so-called adult learners. Why should we be paying a lot of attention to them, John?
1: Uh, we should be paying a lot of attention to them because of the reasons that you just gave as the examples from your own life course. Adults bring a whole host of experiences that they often take for granted because they happen to them and they don't think they're that important. When they are teased out, particularly in a teaching process that thrives and relies on their experiences being brought to bear on a problem we're working on. Mm. Yeah, that becomes very, very important. So I think it's important for us to think about the ways in which the adult learners have had real-world experiences that they can relate to the problem at hand. And I think it's also important to help them think about how they can be feel safe in living with the problem that they're presented at any given time. I think a lot of the experiences that adults have are taken for granted by the adult themselves and not relied upon as a way to reflect upon how what they've had happen in their past is going to be important for them in the future.
0: Mm. And so I go back to that moment when John Nash is standing outside the classroom door, right? And you you take that deep breath and you come inside and who you are as a person is someone who's expecting to find out a whole lot about your students Because that's the process that you're going to go through with them, right? You're going to learn so much about them, but you don't know that before you open the door of the classroom. And so you're designing processes that are meant to actually elicit all of that experience and bring it to bear, right? Fair statement?
1: Yes, fair statement. It has to happen, in fact. In fact, the pre-step, in fact, so when we talk about to the extent our listeners are familiar with design thinking and the cycle of activities that go around. And so it sort of it starts with empathy and then a synthesis phase and then some brainstorming and prototyping and then testing and then it cycles around. But if you're working on a team there's a pre-step to all of that, and that is the team formation. And I explicitly ask students to think about what they're good at, and not by saying, you know, like I'm I'm good at baseball or I'm good at at writing, but rather, what are your sort of superpowers as a person? Where have you really come through? for others in the past? What have others said about you that they say you're good at that maybe you don't give enough credit to? Mm-hmm. And when we reveal all that, and then when they reveal that to each other, mm-hmm. then the team becomes something altogether different. In last fall, when Dr. Rand Hardrove and I were working on this class, we had some reflection and action sessions after every class. So when we recorded those, we're analyzing that data now on what it means to teach design thinking and let's not. And what we discovered is in these small teams of three, that when the teams got to know each other and understood each other's superpowers, mm-hmm. the team itself became a fourth member of the team. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. It was as if they were something bigger than themselves. And so they were able to do more than they anticipated. So mm-hmm. I think that that's really important, is tapping into past experience, no matter how old you are, and then helping learners reveal that amongst themselves and share it so that they can become stronger than they are when they walked in.
0: Mm. And so, John, that's a a perfect segue then. As we kind of come towards the end of this awesome conversation, I was moved to discover that you worked as a counselor at a crisis intervention hotline Mm -hmm. while you were a student at UC Santa Barbara back in the late. 90s, John, I worked both as a counselor and a volunteer coordinator at our Honolulu Suicide and Crisis Hotline. Wow. And yeah. I suspect you carry from that experience a number of special skills and dispositions in your proverbial suitcase. And my good friend and fellow podcast host, Steve Shapiro, his podcast is called Experience Matters, often talks about how experience is really the key to the whole thing. So in what ways does this experience still matter in your life, John, and your work? And what are you thinking these days about all the news stories we read and hear about young people in America experiencing a massive wave of of mental health challenges?
1: Oh, I carry some of that with me today. I was so young. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was, you know what, 20, 21, yeah. maybe, mm-hmm. you know, fielding calls for the county on a crisis line. It was it was something, and not to be reductionist about it, Josh, but I think what I still remember today is just what a level three response was, which is like how to have a good conversation and draw out. So tell me more about that, or is that the case, or you repeat back what they're saying. Yeah. And that taught me how to be thoughtful about, having conversations with people and trying to be empathetic for the rest of my life. And I'm not saying it's easy, easy, that's hard work. It's not that I'm the cobbler whose children have no shoes, but I teach design thinking and I teach empathy, but you know, I bet there are people in my life would say like that Nash, he's, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't really practice what he preaches, Mm -hmm. but because it's hard work you have to keep at it, I think. And what do I think about that with regard to today? It's heartbreaking. I have students who are experiencing that kind of pain, children in my life that have experienced that sort of pain. I think that we're all in a position now to be thoughtful about how we consider people's experiences, their past experiences, and that their lived experience now is legitimate. And we have to think about how we can be thoughtful and proactive when people trust us enough to come to us and tell us about it.
0: And so, John, that's, again, a perfect segue. Last year, I read a book called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krisnark, which really mm-hmm. rocked my world. And in it, the author describes a series of good ancestor questions and prompts that lead to deep conversations. And you decided to respond to one of Krasnarek's prompts. And again, perfect segue. The prompt is, what for you, John Nash, at the University of Kentucky, are the most powerful reasons for caring about current and future generations.
1: I can't help but go back a little bit to what Cass Holman said that I quoted earlier, but these are the people who are going to make the world suck or not suck. Right. Well, you and I are about the same age. I've just, in December, I turned 61. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at my own children who are they're in their 20s and 30s and thinking about how is the world being left for them and will they, how will they carry on from there? And so I think the most powerful reasons for caring about future generations is so that the planet can survive in a way that lets all living things be you know, continue on. And so we do our own little part here. I sit in Lexington, Kentucky with a bevy of students who want to be school leaders or just want to get through their bachelor's degree. And I want them to be able to leave their their program and their experience with me and us in a way that makes them feel like they can also make a positive difference.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, what happened to me, John, is that, you know, if the gods permit me another 30 years, I'm 64. What the good ancestor did is it kind of locked me into a very jarring sort of moment when I realized that if I do get you know, 20 or 30 years, who boy, I got to make it count. Right. And make making it count is all about how I set up myself as a good ancestor for future generations. Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're thinking.
1: Yes. I mean, I'm more and more thoughtful about the way I interact with my adult children now because they are adults. And I reflect on whether I had made good choices with them as they were elementary school children and teenagers and college students. And I think it's coming back in positive ways. I see them wanting to hang around me more. I see them wanting to be a part of what we're doing. And that's that's a good sign.
0: Yeah. You know, my daughter, who's a teacher at a nature immersion school in Northern California, in Marin County, she and I, speaking of, you know, having an adult relationship, oh my God, it's just so awesome to have an older child that you've become great friends with, right? Right. And she and I have been talking a lot about how important trust relationships are, not only just in life, but also as a teacher, you know, trust relationships with fellow teachers, trust relationships with your students. And it feels to me like your life has been a long and interesting journey of slowly building trust relationships with the people who are around you, most especially the students that you help guide and coach and mentor and sponsor and advise, right? Fair statement? Yes.
1: Fair statement, because after 45 to 75 minutes with me on that first day when I walk in and now the students get to know me, they start to see that this is an entirely different kettle of fish in terms of how this course is going to go and how we're going to teach it. And therefore, you must trust me. And then I have to tell them I trust them. Yeah. I have to tell them that I'm here for them. I'm going to Mm. change the way I do things because of what you tell me that tends to get them. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. I think it's a, a continual... Cycle of building trust relationships.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So, John, it has been my practice at the end of interviews to have guests give a shout out to giants upon whose shoulders they stand. And in your case, that person appears to be Skeet Creekmore, who served as one of your mentors. And I will say, John, that I would change my name to Skeet Creekmore tomorrow if the courts would let me, (laughs) because that might be the coolest name ever. But be that as it may, who is Skeet to you, John? And in what ways is he one of the key figures in your remarkable journey, including your time teaching in Salt Lake City?
1: Well, yes, actually, I met Ski Creekmore in Monroe, Louisiana, mm. and he was my mentor in my master's program. I was pursuing a master's in special education. And at the time, my aspirations for career and life were to get my master's degree and work for some socially good doing organization that would support The interests I had, which at the time were vocational transition from school to work for adults with developmental disabilities. Mm. And that's my master's program. And Skeet Creekmore, a larger than life person who I've lost touch with. And your question actually brought me back to thinking about my interactions with Skeet. And I'd like to find him Mm. and let him know this again, if I haven't ever told him. But That on the first day of my second semester of my program, he called me into his office and he sat down. And as I'd mentioned, my aspirations were modest and I just wanted to get my master's and go work. And he said, we're going to figure out where you're going to go get your doctorate. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And and I said, what? (laughs) And thanks to him, I did. I I went and I pursued a, a Ph.D., And uh, I just want to also add, this is, I say Ski Creekmore was a larger than life fellow. He was a big guy from North Carolina and he is the former world champion banjo player. Mm. But he was an excellent special education professor at the time, Northeast Louisiana University.
0: Mm. That's awesome. Well, a huge shout out to Skeet, and I hope that you reconnect with him at some point and you can Thank share you. this episode with him. And we'll do a little dedication to him here at the end. I'm just such a huge fan of the idea of understanding the giants upon whose shoulders we stand. For me, it's a long list. I'm sure it's true for you as well it's a nice feeling, isn't it? To know that you stand on these shoulders. I think that's probably how you see it too.
1: Assuredly. Few of my ideas lately are my own. They're just something I heard that would seem like a good idea and we ought to apply it. We're in my corner of the playground.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. John Nash, thank you so much for being on the show today. I hope you and Beth Have a good rest of this semester in 2023. And I know that you're going to be traveling soon, so that sounds super awesome. You're headed off to Alaska. And so I really appreciate the time. And it's been, John, just such a blast to do a deep dive into your life. I appreciate everything that you shared with me along the way.
1: Yeah, thank you, Josh. It was touching to work with you on this. And the due diligence you do to think about the conversation in advance is fabulous.
0: Thank you, John. Take care. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over a hundred songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dinter-Smith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapun Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.